Luke 10 at verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. The introduction to the parable begins with this lawyer who stood up in verse 25 to put Jesus to the test, and here was the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the lawyer was a religious person who knew and studied the Old Testament well. He could answer questions about what's right, what's wrong, well-trained in rabbinic tradition and oral tradition and in the law of God. This is an expert in the interpretation of the law of God. And he's asking Jesus a question. We can already figure out that he's probably putting Jesus to the test. This is not a guy who is coming to get answers for his questions. He's coming to put Jesus to the test. We're told that explicitly in the passage. The reason the lawyer asked him was to put Jesus under scrutiny. And he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, at face value, it's a ridiculous question. Because if we understand anything about the word inheritance... You can't do anything to earn an inheritance. An inheritance is actually something earned by somebody else, freely given to you. But it was common, if you understand the lawyer and his perspective, the lawyer would have believed that an obedient, law-abiding Jew could earn the inheritance of Israel, which is eternal life. And if we understand that, then the question actually isn't ridiculous at all. This lawyer wants to know Jesus' take on earning eternal life. What must I do? And this is really the ultimate question for all of mankind. Indeed, what must we do to earn eternal life? How can one receive eternal life? If eternal life is something God offers to people, then how can we get it? That should be what every human being is pursuing. Well, verse 26, Jesus said to him, oh, you want to know what to do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus doesn't say, hey, tell me what the law says. He says, I want to know your understanding of the law. How do you read it? What's your take 
on what the law teaches. Tell me how you read it. Kenneth Bailey, in his book Through Peasant Eyes, paraphrases uh, what, uh, what would have been going through the mind of the lawyer. The Old Testament teaches that the inheritance of Israel is a gift and no man can merit it. But some leading rabbis taught that the inheritance of Israel, which is eternal life, was achieved through the keeping of the law. So this question from the lawyer was probably a test to discover whether or not Jesus believed that eternal life was available through a keeping of the law. And instead of going to Old Testament teaching, Jesus skillfully solicits the questioner's opinion, going along with their view that eternal life could be earned by keeping the law. Let me paraphrase that. Jesus knows the lawyer believes that he can earn eternal life by the keeping of God's law. So Jesus goes along with it. Jesus does not try to disprove the lawyer's view by using a bunch of Old Testament scripture passages. Rather, he lets the lawyer give his own answer. And he's going to show him through the parable just how unable he is to actually keep the law. So he answered, verse 27, the lawyer. Jesus says, how do you read it? The lawyer pulls out this great summary of the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your uh, strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Pulled directly out of Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And straight out of Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He understands the law well, the sum of the law. And Jesus said in verse 28 to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now we might think as believers that Jesus, this, this isn't true. You can't do it. But I want you to catch what Jesus is saying. If you do this to this lawyer, to any human being, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will earn eternal life. Do this, and indeed, you will live. It's a very true statement. Leviticus 18.5 puts it this way, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The Lord's made it perfectly clear if there is anybody who can perfectly do loving God above all and loving neighbor as self, they will have eternal life and they will earn this inheritance. The problem is that no one can do this. No mere human being has ever been able to do this. No one is pulling it off right now and guaranteed, according to the word of God, no human being ever will pull it off. It is just impossible. We actually lost the ability to do this in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell into sin. It wasn't just the misery that came along with it. We became totally unable to keep God's law, completely unable. It's not even in the realm of possibility. There's not even a one in a billion chance, 0% of human beings with no qualifications, 0.000 to the cows come home, percent of human beings can keep God's law perfectly and live. Jesus knows this, obviously, but the lawyer doesn't. Jesus didn't correct him by saying something like, and do you actually think you can do this? He didn't go there. He just let it sit for a minute and let this lawyer think about it. No one can perfectly obey the law. No one can do this. 
And even if we arrived at the point where we had become able to obey the law perfectly, which again is impossible, let's say we had, that wouldn't atone for all of our past sins that we committed leading up to it. And it wouldn't atone for our original sin that we're born into, the guilt from Adam. We just don't have the ability as human beings anymore. Now, verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So now he wants to sort of, we might say, oh, he's changing the subject. He wants to figure this out. But this is actually a legitimate question from him as a lawyer. Because it was common for Jews, especially the Jewish leaders, Pharisees, rabbis, teachers, lawyers, scribes, to define one's neighbor as those who were close family members, or at least Jews who were very upright, people easy for them to love. And so when he asked Jesus this question, and who is my neighbor? He's doing so to justify himself. He, could, he was probably already thinking this, you know, the loving God above all, yeah, I pray regularly, I go to temple. I pay careful attention to the Bible. I don't believe in any other gods. I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think I've got one, that one checked. But the neighbor part, okay, let's talk about that. It depends. Who's my neighbor? Is my neighbor just those people that are in my close family, that are other lawyers and Pharisees and other Jews who are upright? then I'm pretty sure I love my neighbor as myself. But if my neighbor is other people, then I'm actually going to quibble with Jesus. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? The lawyer is waiting on Jesus to tell him who his neighbor is. And depending on Jesus' answer, he will try to position himself as either one who has been loving his neighbors well, close family members, I've done that perfectly, just like I love myself, or he'll position himself as one who disagrees with Jesus about who a neighbor is. But catch, he's trying to justify himself. This lawyer thinks that indeed he can earn a right standing before God, and he can earn eternal life, and he is out to prove it right in front of Jesus. In either case, he's prepared to make the case that he's indeed loving his neighbor well and therefore acceptable to God. What Jesus is going to do is completely shatter any hopes this man has for loving his neighbor perfectly enough to be acceptable by God. Jesus is about ready to launch into that. We don't know what this man did with the parable. We don't know if this man left really depressed, really hopeless, or if he left thinking, yeah, it's the one who showed mercy, but I just disagree with you and I'm not going to waste any more time. Or if he went home and he thought about it and he finally came to Christ. We don't know. But we do know the parable. <laughs> and in the teaching of this parable, I want us to notice that God's law must be perfectly kept to inherit eternal life, especially the second part of it, loving our neighbor. And I want to look at three things that Jesus deals with in the parable. Who is my neighbor? First. Secondly, how should I love my neighbor? And then third, the true neighbor lover. So first, who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied. Now, <laughs> I think this is quite astonishing. Every time I read this, that <laughs> Jesus, on the tip of his tongue, has this parable ready to go. <laughs> How do you come up with this? Only if you are wisdom itself. Only if you're the son of God uh, in the flesh could you come up with this right on the spot. So verse 30, Jesus starts with, A man was going down from Jericho to Jerusalem. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this would not have come as a surprise to anybody hearing this parable. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho 
was known by some as the Bloody Pass. It was a 17-mile-long road descended from 2,700 feet above sea level to about 800 feet below sea level in Jericho. The road is filled with steep banks, sharp curves. It was just a dangerous road to be on, but oftentimes robbers and thieves would wait on the road at certain places and take out folks, rob them blind, and leave them laying half dead like this person. So this man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. His condition half dead. I'm told that there are rabbinical categories of life. Half dead is the equivalent of next to death, and the next step toward death would be one just expiring. So this guy is as close to death about as you can get without being dead. So half dead is really almost all the way dead. And this man would certainly die if nobody stopped to help him. That's Jesus' point. Nobody helps, this guy dies. Notice they stripped him. So in the mind of this lawyer, his neighbor would be at least a Jew, but more likely his family or close friend groups and upright Jews. That was his neighbor in his mind. But when Jesus says that this man was stripped and half dead, it means that he would be unresponsive so you could not identify him by his language or accent. It also means because he's not going to be talking it also means that if his clothing is off, you can't identify him by what he's wearing. So catch this. The man beside the road, wrote one commentator, was reduced to a mere human being in need. That is all this lawyer knows about this guy. He is a human being in need. He belonged to no man's ethnic or religious community. This is my neighbor. A human being who needs help. That's the neighbor. R.C. Sproul, on this passage regarding who's my neighbor, wrote, there are no limits. There is a universal neighborhood. Every human being created in the image of God is my neighbor, which means I am called to love every human being on the face of this earth as much as I love myself. Even if he is not part of the household of faith, he is still my neighbor. When we see people in need, we don't ask them how they got there. Our job is not to condemn the person who has fallen into the gutter and ask them, how did you get there? If they're in the gutter, it is our job to help them out of the gutter. Why? Because we would want to be helped. And that person is my neighbor. And I'm supposed to love my neighbor like I love myself. Our neighbor is anyone who needs help. No, that's a lot of people. And we're already going to run smack dab into the improbability of keeping this law perfectly. This actually highlights why so often in the Gospels we read that Jesus healed everyone. You know that phrase, like, he healed everyone who came to him? There was no neighbor, no person in need that Jesus didn't help. Beloved, this is incredible. Who's in need? The poor, orphans, many children in the foster care system, widows, those who have no family to look after them, outcasts, foreigners, someone whose marriage is falling apart, someone whose children need help, someone who just lost their job, someone who's sick. It's just endless, right? 
you could fill in the blanks and add 100 more, and we're just getting the tip of the iceberg. Who's my neighbor? Every human being. Who's the neighbor I'm called to love as I love myself? Everyone who has a need. Wow, that's big. It is big, beloved. Christians are to be those who indeed are loving their neighbor as they love themselves. Now, how should I love my neighbor? What does neighbor love look like? So the neighbor is anyone who's in need, but what does it look like to love them? And Jesus begins by how not to love our neighbors. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. It was not as though the priest didn't see the man. The story goes that he saw the man beaten up and left for dead, and he simply passed by him, paying him no attention. Probably certainly didn't come within six feet. I think they gave you four cubits. If the guy was dead, you don't want to come within four cubits of him or you might be unclean. He avoided helping him. He saw him and felt nothing toward him. We don't know why the priest didn't help, but we do know that his not helping is shameful. It was sinful. He might not have stopped because he was afraid the robbers were still close by and this was simply a trap. He might not have stopped because if the man was actually dead and the priest contacted him, the priest would be ceremonial unclean and need to spend several days going through the process of purification. That all could factor into it. We're not told why he didn't. We're just told that he didn't. And that's how not to be a neighbor. Then we're told this Levite, verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now Levites were the priest's helpers. So here, this guy didn't stop. He avoided the half-dead man who was stripped down to nothing, but likely his underwear or maybe even less than that. He continued on. And this parable begins with an indictment against the priests and the Levites, two categories of people that this lawyer would have held in high regard. Jews of the Jews. Hey, these are, these are people I consider to be my neighbors. These are great upstanding folks. They didn't stop. They didn't help. It's possible to live as a Christian in such a religious bubble of moral people like the priests and the Levite where we see people in need and we just don't care. But, but we have a thousand good reasons why we shouldn't, right? Oh, maybe I don't have time. I don't have compassion. I don't care, right? And there's limits, beloved. All of us are going to run up into limits. There's not a one of us in this room who's God. Jesus could heal everybody because he's God. We're not. So we have limits. We're going to get that. But to love our neighbor, like the priest and the Levite, is to just be living in sin. We see them. We see someone in need. We can do something. That's the assumption here. The priest and the Levite, they could have helped. That's the assumption of the parable, or there'd be no indictment against them. But they didn't do anything. That's how not to love our neighbor. Verse 33, though, Jesus tells us what should our neighbor love look like, what should neighbor love look like, by launching in with the Samaritan, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, the Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. In the Babylonian exile, a lot of the Assyrians who repopulated Samaria, the Jews of Samaria intermarried with so the Jews in Judea, where this story takes place between Jerusalem and Jericho, called them half-breeds. And these half-breeds also had their place of worship at Mount Gerizim. And the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, that's there is why in John 4, 9, the lady at the well said, How is it that you, a Jew, talking to Jesus, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You just... 
The Jews despised these Samaritans. The Samaritan had compassion on the man. And you can make a really good argument, beloved, that because this is set between Jerusalem and Jericho in Judea, that this Samaritan was helping out a Jew, a, a, a true blood Jew, someone who happened to be on that road. You can make that argument. So the Samaritan was actually helping out someone who would have hated him and he would have hated. So he went to him and bound up his wounds, verse 34, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This care is incredible. He risks his own well-being, first of all, because nobody knows if the robbers are still around and waiting for somebody to stop and help him, and they may actually pounce again. So he's risking his own life to help this individual. I came across this years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. on this. I've been to the mountaintop, said the first question that the priest asked the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The Samaritan does not ask the man how he got into the mess and then lecture him about traveling this road alone with no help. It's not part of the story. He gives him first aid treatment, oil, wine, antiseptic, bandages, cleaning up his blood and wounds. He put on isopropyl alcohol or whatever, or hydrogen peroxide, trying to dull the pain. This is intense care of a stranger. He turns his animal into an ambulance. He drives the man to the nearest Motel 6 or Best Western. And while he's at the inn, he took care of him. And the Samaritan spent the rest of the night caring for the man. Now, if this man's half dead, you're changing a lot of bandages. You're doing a lot of pouring on oil and wine to soothe what is wrong with him, and also to prevent infection, which is what wine was known to have done. And he did this in Judea, where this Samaritan is hated. Kenneth Bailey suggests that having the Samaritan load this half-dead person, likely a Jew, onto his donkey and ride him into town in Jericho would be like having an Indian walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse, getting a room at the local salon, and then spending the entire night with him. If that Indian did not scalp the cowboy, but indeed was helping him, he might still have lost his life. What this Samaritan is doing is incredible. The next day, it goes even farther, verse 35, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Two denarii was a couple days wages, likely enough for anywhere from a couple weeks to maybe two months max, stay at the end, somewhere in that range. Again, the guy is giving him enough time to heal, likely all the way, or at least get enough healing where he can travel. And he says, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I'll pay his whole tab. Again, radical generosity, tremendous generosity from this Samaritan. So you have this incredibly generous Samaritan helping out this half-dead person, loving him as he would love himself. The Samaritan sacrifices everything, including his own life nearly, in order to help this stranger. And Jesus, at the end of the parable in verse 36 says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think 
proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And in verse 37, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now I can, I imagine the lawyer had to choke this answer out. Who do you think was a neighbor to him? Notice he didn't even say the Samaritan. Probably couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just said, well, you said he had compassion on him. So the guy who had showed him mercy. I imagine he had to choke that out. And that was really hard for this religious lawyer to say. Jesus told the lawyer in verse 37, then you go and you do likewise. You go and you do what the priest and the Levite, your buddies, refuse to do. You go and do likewise. And you can have that eternal life, as it were. Jesus is saying this, you religious elites have no idea how to be good neighbors. You lawyers, priests, Levites, Pharisees, all of you have no compassion for the hurting. But the Samaritans, your enemies, those sinners that you despise, they have compassion toward people. Far from being able to save yourself, you can't even live better than a Samaritan. Whoa. Now that's strong just in the story. You think you love your neighbor? This Samaritan you despise in my story that I'm telling in this parable is actually a better neighbor than even you are. In just a few short sentences, Jesus taught this lawyer that there was no way on earth he could love his neighbor as himself. And thus there was no possible way that this lawyer could earn eternal life. The point is this, the law, which the lawyer wanted to focus on, is impossibly high to be a means for eternal life. If one understands the law in all of its fullness, one has to conclude the demands of the law are too high for me to attain. I can never, not a chance, save myself by keeping the law. The message of the Bible is you must perfectly obey the law or find someone else to obey the law for you or you will perish. But the Bible has also removed one option from those two as far as a means for eternal life. Two options to get eternal life. You keep the law perfectly from conception all the way till the very last breath you take and you will inherit eternal life. You will earn it. Or you find somebody else to do it for you. And the Bible has removed option one as even possible. So there's actually one option left, but this lawyer doesn't want to look at it. Well, Jesus Christ, beloved, after destroying this man's hope of earning eternal life and earning an inheritance by loving God above all and his neighbor as himself is left standing there. And this parable, I think, in such a unique way points to him as the only one who's really the good Samaritan. And we'll get to just a little bit more in a moment. But we are like the man left for dead on the side of the road. Jesus Christ is the one who actually does love his neighbor perfectly and comes to the rescue. The Samaritan offered help to someone who was almost dead. Catch this, Jesus came to save those who were all the way dead, spiritually. I mean, there was no life in us. There wasn't half dead or one just expiring. There was one who already expired. There's no life in them at all. Jesus came to save such. The Samaritan risked his life to help this wounded man. He could have been attacked. 
But Jesus didn't just risk his life to rescue us. He didn't come down here thinking, hey, maybe this won't go so well. Oh no, he came down here knowing I'm going to give my life for these people. I'm really going to have to pay it all to rescue them. The Samaritan was inconvenienced for a few days. Jesus sacrificed himself perfectly for 33 years. The Samaritan carried the man to an inn for rest and healing. Jesus is carrying us to heaven for perfect bliss and happiness where we'll no longer even be in the presence of sin. The Samaritan promised to pay all the costs associated with the man's healing. Jesus paid the entire cost of our redemption. He put our entire bill on his tab. This is what the cross is. Jesus pays our debt in full. There's nothing left to do for our spiritual healing but believe in him and thank him for it the rest of our lives. And Jesus could have asked, if I help these sinners out, what will happen to me? And he could have answered it and just stayed in heaven. But instead he asked, if I don't help these sinners out, what will happen to them? And he came according to the loving decree of his father. Jesus is the perfect neighbor, beloved, who has loved us like he's loved himself, just perfect. And you'll not find love like this anywhere in the world, nowhere. Not in the best marriage, not in the best parent-child relationship, not in the best friendships, even like David and Jonathan. You won't find this kind of love because it's a divine love, beloved. We don't even have the capability of loving this well. It's unbelievable love lavished upon us, people like us. Let me conclude with this. What Jesus makes clear in the parable in an indirect way, but so direct in the telling of this parable, is there will not be one person in heaven with eternal life who has earned their right to be there, period. There will not be one mere human being in heaven who has eternal life living in God's presence, who has earned their right to be there. No one. The only human beings in heaven will be those who've been rescued by Jesus, who believe in him for salvation. Those are the only people who will be in heaven. We can't save ourselves by loving God above all. It's impossible. This is actually the easy one that we're talking about the neighbor love. Loving God even more than we love ourselves, loving him above all with all of our hearts, soul, strength, and mind. That's the hard one. We're not even touching on that. And as we look at the neighbor love, we've all got to say, I can't, I can't pull it off. I can try. I can go out there, but I can't do this perfectly. There's no way I can save myself. And in case any of us is asking the question, who is my neighbor? The parable makes it very clear. My neighbor is anyone who needs help. Any human being made in the image of God who needs help is my neighbor. And I need to love them which means sacrificially committing myself to the well-being of them, none of us will be saved by doing that. But all who are already saved will have a heart of compassion, just like a Samaritan. It's a, it's a new heart that's been installed in us by the Holy Spirit. It's a heart of pity and mercy because God's had mercy upon us. And we'll go out into the world, not as those trying to justify ourselves and what must I do to inherit eternal life like the lawyer. We'll go out into the world very different, but it'll sound similar because we'll be saying, hey, who's my neighbor? How do I need to love them? What does that look like? 
but we'll be doing it just because we're so delighted to be saved. Because we've already been justified in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has already earned eternal life for us. So when we go out into the world to love our neighbors, laying down our life for their well-being, to whatever extent we are able, we'll go out and do that. It'll be a delight. It'll be joy. It'll be service to Christ. And it is something that each of us is called to do as believers. So if there are any here or there are people we know who think, by the way, I think R.C. Sproul in another sermon, might have been a different one, just came to mind. They would go around and ask, you know, the old D. James Kennedy question, if you were to die tonight and you came to heaven and the Lord said, why should I let you into my heaven? He said about 90% of the response was because I've been a good person. That's this lawyer. It's exactly the case. 90% of people believe that they are at least enough of a good Samaritan that they can earn eternal life, beloved. That is, that is awful. That, it's heartbreaking to think about. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, far from teaching people, oh yeah, live this way and God will love you, actually destroys the hope of being able to live a certain way and be loved by God. It actually says there's no way anybody can believe in Jesus and then go worry about loving your neighbor, but first get Jesus straight. First get eternal life and get it by trusting in Christ. So if there's anybody here, or we know anybody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ or thinks earning their way to salvation, let this parable destroy it. You haven't come close. None of us can. Get used to it. Let that sink in. And so cling to Jesus and believe in him. And in him, you have eternal life. Let's pray.